Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Whether we're playing Clue, writing, quizzing our kids or friends, or analyzing data to make decisions, we're all familiar with those key questions, who, what, and why. And yet the question that goes to the heart of what we actually do and how it will turn out is often when. We make literally dozens of when decisions every day. Sometimes we jump into something too quickly. Sometimes we procrastinate. We schedule the hard stuff in the morning when we're fresh, or some schedule the easy stuff in the morning to get it out of the way. We think that most of these decisions derive from habit or intuition. But in fact, modern science and research in psychology, biology, economics, and even anthropology all provide roadmaps for making our when decisions more effective. Now best-selling and influential author Daniel Pink takes us into the essence of those decisions in his new book, When. Daniel Pink is the author of several best-selling books, including Drive, To Sell as Human, and A Whole New Mind. His books have won multiple awards and have been read throughout the world. And it is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Pink back to this program to talk about When, the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, Daniel, welcome back to the program. Uh, Thanks for having me again, Jeff. Good to be here. Great to have you here. You know, we think so much about the fact that the decisions we make, particularly the when decisions and the timing that surrounds them, even if we focus on them, that it's somehow an art or an intuition, Mm. that it's not necessarily a science. Talk about that part Mm -hmm. of it first. Yeah, no, I, I think you got it exactly right, that we, we, we tend to make these, those kinds of decisions in our life in a, a pretty loose and haphazard way. So, you know, as you were saying at the top, we, we are very intentional about what we do, how we do it, who we do it with. But these questions of when we put on, the, you know, ah, it doesn't really matter that much. And what the science shows very clearly is that it matters a lot. Um, uh, there are certain times of day when we're more effective at certain kinds of work. Uh, beginnings exert an influence on what we do and how we do it. Midpoints exert an influence on what we do and how we do it. Same thing with endings. And if you go into this research, which is, as you say, as you said in the intro, you know, across many, many different fields, you can begin to extract the evidence-based ways to make systematically smarter, shrewder timing decisions. And one of the keys to that, as you point out in the book, is that a significant percentage, as much as 20% of our variance in how we perform cognitively, yeah. is as a result of when we do something. Yeah, time of day. So, so time, exactly. So, so it's time of day explains, as I said, you know, like, why, does, why, why, why does Fred perform at a higher level than Ed? Well, what the research shows is that about 20% of that variance is going to be due to simply the time of day. Fred is working at the right time of day for his tasks. Uh, Ed is not. And so Ed can, Ed can begin to catch up. And if you're Ed and Fred's boss, you want to make sure that Ed and Fred are doing the right work at the right time of day. One of the questions, though, that that seems to come out of this is whether this is relevant to the giver or the receiver, the doer or the person that's Mm. being done to. And and where it really struck me is in this in the area of surgery, for example, where you talk Mm -hmm. about outcomes are better when surgery is done in the morning. But if the doctor is a night owl and has greater intelligence and creativity in the later hours, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, what, what, what the research shows, it's, it's, it's interesting. First of all, there's not a lot of surgery, uh, elective surgery, done in the evenings. Right. And I, I just think that's part of this overall bias against uh, night owls. 
Um, what, what you do see is actually, uh, uh, especially surgeons and teachers end up being very larky. Uh, a lot of larks go into those professions in part because they, in part because they start so early. Uh, but what the really, the big takeaway from the, the research on surgery is, is that, uh, having surgery in the afternoon, it, it can raise your risk significantly. You have, uh, four times as great of a chance of an anesthesia error at 3 p.m. as you do at 9 a.m. Uh, in, across medicine, you see this afternoon trough being very dangerous. Uh, nurses far less likely to wash their hands in the afternoon than in the mornings. And so, um, uh, and so a lot of this has to do with the performance. Uh, you're, you're right, there's an interaction in, in any kind of setting between two different people who might have two different chronotypes. But uh, most surgeons end up being pretty larky. Um, but if you are a surgeon who is a, who is a night owl, then maybe that's the sort of thing where you should consider doing the kind of work that requires you to, to do that, you know, emergency room surgery or something, something like that. One of the other things you talk about is the beginnings of projects and that there are really certain times when one should begin something in order to set up a better outcome. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a phenomenon uh, detected by... Uh, three researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Heng Chen Dai, who's now at UCLA, uh, Katie Milkman, and Jason Rees. And what they found is that there's certain, uh, certain dates trigger what they call the fresh start effect, the fresh start effect. Uh, and what it means is that all days are not created, all days are not created equal. Um, that there's certain days that operate as what they call temporal landmarks. They're landmarks in time. They stand out in the same way that physical landmarks stand out. Uh, and so these temporal landmarks have two effects on our behavior. One thing that they do, like physical landmarks, is they get us to slow down. The second thing that they do is that they trigger this really peculiar form of mental accounting. And so what we do is we say, um, you know, like businesses open a fresh ledger at the beginning of a new year. What we do at these temporal landmarks is we open up a fresh ledger on ourselves, essentially. Uh, we say, oh, old me never exercised, but new me is going to be awesome about exercising and, and eating right. And what this means as a practical matter is that we're more likely to start a behavior change and more likely to sustain it if we do it on certain kinds of days. It's, all days are not created equal. And so the fresh start dates are, you know, you're more likely to, to succeed if you, do, if you begin it on a Monday rather than on a Thursday, if you begin it on the first of the month rather than on the ninth of the month, if you're a student beginning it on the day uh, the first day of the semester rather than the 13th day of the semester, That's, that all days of the year are not created equal um, and that we can make systematically better decisions about when we launch certain kinds of behavior change. And if we do it on the right day, we're going to up our odds of success. How much of that, though, is psychological versus biological? A lot of these things with respect to when there's really a clear scientific basis, a biological basis, a historical basis. With something like this, how much of it is just psychological, this sense of starting on a Monday or in a fresh context with a new month or something? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good question, and, and, the, and, the, and the borderline between what is psychology and what is biology is very murky. It's, uh, or often things don't clearly line up as, as, as neatly as that. But I think in this particular case, I think that you're right, that it is much more psychological. We're essentially tricking ourselves in this case. Yeah, um, there isn't anything or organic or natural or biological about a Monday, say, all right? That's a days of the week. I mean, a day is a natural phenomenon and a year is a natural phenomenon, right. but a week is not. 
a week is something that we have in, that we human beings have invented, and so some of it is I think in this particular case is very strongly psychological that it is essentially a way that we are mentally psychologically tricking ourselves now in this in, now that when we trick ourselves mentally when, when we when we take these kind of cognitive shortcuts that we often make bad decisions but in this particular case I actually think that the effect is positive on our behavior that we get it gives us a chance to start anew uh, if we had if we if we felt like we were never able to make a fresh start we wouldn't be able to do any kind of behavior change we'd be stuck the idea of this artificial construct the week being a good example of that Talk about the way we can do that, use similar kinds of things to trick ourselves in a positive way. One of the things that I discovered, Jeff, working on this is that a lot of things we think are natural units of time are really not. The natural units of time, as I said, are a day because we have the Earth, you know, um, uh, uh, spinning on its axis uh, fully in about 24 hours. We have the year, so we are moving around. The planet is moving around the sun in 365 and one quarter days. Um, but um, but other kinds of things are not, other kinds of things are just uh, uh, weeks, seconds, hours are just things that human beings have done to try to corral time, to make sense of it, to tame it in a sense. Um, and that's part of what we do. So if you think about things like um, um, uh, let's take like beginnings, middles, and ends. Uh, much of our life is episodic, and and if we're conscious of when the effect that beginnings have on our behavior, if we're conscious of the effect that midpoints have on our behavior, if we're conscious of the effects that um, endings have on our behavior, uh, we can do uh, we can do a little bit better. Let me give you an example of this. So let's talk about uh, the effect of endings on our behavior. So let's talk about marathons. Uh, the age at which people are most likely to run their first marathon is age 29. That's a very peculiar age, uh, but we can understand what's going on if we are if we know that 29-year-olds are twice as likely to run their first marathon as 28-year-olds. They're twice as likely to run it as 30-year-olds. So here is this thing, this very arbitrary marker of a decade in our lives. We're flipping the odometer to a zero, but it has an effect on our behavior. Uh, it energizes us to do things we might not have otherwise done. And so if we put this in context, we need to recognize that endings of all kinds affect how we do things and, and what we do. So when we get to an end, we're, we're likely to be more energized um, uh, to, to finish a project. Uh, so even if you look at things like, it's, it's crazy, you give people, you give, you know, you give some people a gift card that's, that's good for two weeks and other people a gift card that's good for three months. And amazingly, the people who have the gift card that's only good for two weeks are more likely to cash it in than the people who had three months. Right. The people who had three months had, had six times as much time to, to do it, but it was the urgency of the end that got those two-week people to um, get these two-week people to, to act. And so, um, again, there, there, there's some, I guess, sort of benevolent trickery that we do in our minds. Um, but my point is that if we're aware of these temporal forces, uh, we can use them for, for, for good rather than to trip us up. There's also the subconscious aspect of this, particularly as it relates to something like beginnings. You're writing something, for example. It may begin long before you sit down and put the first word to paper. That There's a process that is at play that makes beginnings and even endings sometimes a little more amorphous. Uh, sure, sure, sure. No, there's, there's definitely, in, in, you know, any kind of creative project, uh, there is a period of incubation that we're not fully, uh, fully aware of. 
But when it comes to actually doing the work, um, we can use the pattern of the day in, to, to improve our effectiveness. So for instance, we have this pattern that I mentioned, a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Most of us are better off doing our analytic work during that peak. And so if you're writing something, they require, you know, which typically requires some degree of focus, heads down work. Um, for those of us who are morning people or intermediate, do it in the morning. Don't squander that time doing something else. Meanwhile, if you're, if you're looking for ways to incubate or brainstorm, we tend to be better at that during the recovery period, which again, for most of us is the um, late afternoon and early evening. And so if we just apportion our, our time a little differently, if we move certain tasks to different times of the day, uh, we're going to see an improvement in performance. And in that context, one of the things that I think probably surprises people is that lunch is more important than breakfast. Talk about that. I think there's a good argument for that. If you look at the research on breakfast, which is the most important meal of the day, I don't, I, I don't think, and most scholars have looked at it, don't find it conclusive. It doesn't, I don't think breakfast is bad at all. Um, but I'm saying that the idea that breakfast is essential, that, it, that if you miss it, all, you know, all is going to go wrong in your life, I, it's, the evidence really isn't there. Um, I think the, the, the evidence that breakfast is the most important meal of the day is a definitive maybe. What's going on now, though, is that if you look at the research on lunch, uh, the research on lunch, which is coming out in the last few years, shows that lunch is actually more important than we realize, that, that lunch has a... Um, a big effect on our on our behavior, on our ability to rebound, uh, on our long term, even our long term vigor. There's some interesting research out of Finland showing that people who took regular lunches were less prone to exhaustion, not surprisingly, that day. But that the effects of taking a regular lunch lasted, uh, you know, you, you follow up with them in a year. And they have um, uh, greater vigor a year later, too. So it's quite amazing. Talk about this notion of synchronization as it relates to the timing of when. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, so, so a big point of uh, synchronization is that we do a lot of things that we synchronize with each with other people in time. So consider choral groups, consider rowing teams. Um, and the way that people – so there's a lot of research on this that shows that what are the elements that are necessary for groups to synchronize effectively. But it also shows some of the sort of a virtuous circle of synchronization so that synchronizing with others really makes us feel good. It elevates our mood. It gives us a sense of purpose. And that elevated mood and sense of purpose actually increases our ability to synchronize effectively. And as a consequence of that, we are synchronizing more effectively so we are in an even better mood and have a deeper sense of purpose, which enhances our – and so there's a virtuous circle there in synchronization. Uh, one of the other things about uh, – if you look at choral singing, just as one instance of synchronization, it's really amazing. Uh, there's huge physiological and psychological effects of singing – not singing, but singing in a group – uh, singing in a group can reduce pain thresholds. It can improve our immune response. Um, certainly elevates mood. Can be a prophylactic against depression. Uh, and, and I think one of the really interesting things coming out in the research on synchronization is that when we synchronize, immediately afterwards, we're more likely to do good. We're more likely to help other people. More likely to, to be open to people who don't look like us. So there's something about synchronizing. I, I haven't cracked the nut on this at all, Jeff. But the, there's something about synchronizing that is fundamentally human. It's part of who we are. It makes us feel good. It makes us do good. At some level, we're naturally adept at it. And, and it suggests that there's something about doing things in time with other people that is part of what it is to be a human being. 
there is also degrees of synchronization. So one wonders whether the degree of that in an organization or a group or anything else in some ways affects the differences that evolve in cultures of different groups and organizations. Huh. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great point. And um, uh, what I did is that I looked at even cross-culturally. So one of the groups that I looked at for synchronization was a group of lunch deliverers in Mumbai, India. Um, they deliver 200,000 lunches a day from people's, bringing them from people's apartments to their loved ones' desks in downtown Mumbai. They do this, as I said, 200,000 times a day, six days a week, with almost no errors. Uh, their error rate is so low that FedEx has gone to study them. Uh, UPS has gone to study them. Um, there's a Harvard Business School case study about them. And, um, and so how this group ends up synchronizing uh, is, is revealing, reveals a set of principles. I think that a lot of the principles of synchronization are fairly universal. But again, there are going to be, there are going to be cultural differences uh, in this as well. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about this as it relates to the various times of the day that that work better for most people than others. The one universal that you talk about is that afternoons, as you say, are kind of the Bermuda Triangle of most people's day. Yeah, when you look at what happens in the afternoons, it's pretty alarming. So um, you see uh, studies of standardized tests showing that standardized test scores for kids plummet in the afternoon. There's some good research out of Denmark showing that taking a standardized test in the afternoon is equivalent to missing two weeks of school. You see big effects on, on health care, so more medical errors, less hand washing in hospitals. Um, you see, uh, if, you, if you look at even instances of, of, of traffic accidents, obviously you're, there are going to be more traffic accidents when there are more cars on the road. But if you control for that, the most common t- uh, the most common period for traffic accidents, again, controlling for cars on the road, is between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. I don't think that's a big surprise. The second most common time for car accidents is 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., that exact that, that, that midday trough. So, um, so, so we have to be uh, conscious of the effect that afternoons often have on our behavior. The good news is that one of the great remedies for this is, is breaks. If we take more breaks and better breaks, we can do a, a, uh, go a long way in mitigating some of the negative effects of that afternoon trough. What impact do those breaks, or in some cases short naps, what impact does it have? Uh, what they do is they, they restore our, our, our uh, mental energy, they restore our ability to focus, uh, and they also have a big uh, uh, mood-boosting effect. And, and one of the things that's interesting is the connection between mood and performance. Uh, we don't perform generally. It, it, there's some exceptions, but we don't generally perform that well when we're in a down mood. And so naps can actually improve our mood, improve our feelings of, of energy, but they needn't be super long. That a 10 to 15-minute nap seems to uh, really do the trick, for, um, according to a lot of this research. Talk about the universality of this, both the afternoon aspect of it that you were just talking about and the importance of naps, that, that no matter what type somebody may be, the afternoons are not good in general. The afternoon seems bad for everybody. Yeah, there's a period of a trough that seems to affect everybody. And again, you know, we can't, you know, Jeff, we can't just, you know, shutter every office, every hospital, <laughs> every police station, you know, take a three-hour siesta. Uh, but what we can do is, is recognize that, move certain kinds of tasks that are less important, which we, we have at work, uh, 
to that period and also be much more systematic about uh, taking more breaks and taking the right kind of breaks. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned and how all of this is backed up more and more all the time by really hard science. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting. What, what I find interesting is, and, and, and a little bit surprising, is if you take scientists in different fields, is how rarely scientists in different fields talk to one another. So, you know, you don't have the economist talking to the psychologist. At some level, you don't have the cognitive psychologist talking to the developmental psychologist talking to the social psychologist. Uh, you certainly don't have the social psychologist talking to the endocrinologist, and you don't have the endocrinologist talking to the, um, the data science people. And what's interesting about it is that more than they, I think they realize, maybe it takes a non-academic and outsider to take a step back, they're asking very similar questions. They're asking questions in this case about what is the effect of time of day. And the questions are similar and the answers that they're yielding have a lot in common. And so they are, they are fashioning these, these, what I think are some truths about who we are, what makes us tick, um, but they're doing it in, in some ways not fully aware of what other people in other fields are doing. The other aspect of the science that I think is pretty interesting, and this is truer of uh, this research than anything I've written, excuse me, than anything that I've written about, is um, is big data. Mm-hmm. Many of these researches, research, much of this research has been done uh, by our new capacity to collect, analyze giant amounts of data and try to find insights um, based on those. And I, I think that's really exciting. So a lot of the studies that I cite are, are, are things that are, um, you know, we, you know we, looked, we looked at 26,000 uh, earnings calls. We looked at 20,000 NBA games. We looked at 2 million uh, student profiles in uh, Los Angeles. And this ability to, to collect and harness uh, massive data sets is, is giving us some really interesting new insights into who we are as human beings. And as a result of this and the hard science behind it, are you seeing corporations or, or larger institutions of any kind really take this into account in terms of, of their policies and procedures that they put into place? You know, not a huge amount, uh, at least not yet. Um, I do think there is a move in general to greater flexibility in the workplace and more people working for themselves. And so if, 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 if individuals uh, have the capacity to do, have some, some sovereignty over their schedule and, and have some control over what they do when, that's going to improve their performance and that's going to help the company. Uh, you see some tender steps for things like napping. So companies like, you're not surprising this group of companies, Ben & Jerry's, Uber, <laughs> Uh, Zappos has nap pods, so employees can take naps. Um, there's uh, Till Roenberg, who is one of the great chronobiologists uh, of our time, has done some work with German companies, uh, auto plant, steel factory, saying, okay, let's figure out people's chronotypes. Uh, you know, are they early or late? And let's refashion their work schedule so it fits to their chronotype rather than plays against their chronotype. And it's found some really um, uh, positive results there. So, uh, so I think the, I mean, I guess the answer is, yeah, I think some companies are recognizing it, but it's been pretty slow. And is there a genetic component to this in terms of the kind of person that, that somebody becomes in their chronotype? Oh, there's no question about that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's a very, very strong, very, very strong biological, um, um, very, uh, 
very, very strong biological component to um, chronotypes. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, we have changes over time so that little kids tend to be very larky. Teenagers, when they hit about 14, they tend to move very strongly toward lateness and owliness. And then in general, over the rest of our lives, we retreat toward uh, larkiness. But again, about 20% of us are very strong night owls. And that has a, it's a very, very, very strong biological component to that. And as you say, there's there's a, a prejudice against night owls in some ways. Oh, yeah, totally. No, the whole world is configured against them in many, many ways. This is why we have 8 o'clock staff meetings and, um, you know, uh, why, we get, why we make people commute at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning or we send teenagers who have very late chronotypes, make them start school at 7.20 a.m. Daniel Pink, his book is When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, always a pleasure. Thank you.